This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The World Today. I'm Sally Sara. This Tuesday, rebooting the NDIS. What needs to happen to ensure participants receive better care and value for money? And a new body set up to oversee flood recovery in northern New South Wales. Will it use its powers to compulsorily buy land? If you've seen the movie The Castle, it's obviously nobody's going to be thrown out without some form of compensation and, and consultation beforehand. Compulsory acquisition, it's, it's a tool, one of many, which hopefully will be used to solve the problem. First up today, federal politics. It's only week two of the campaign, but the major parties have already accused each other of scare tactics. The coalition is warning a Labor policy would drive up the cost of energy, but has so far refused to release the modelling to back it up. And Labor is reusing a strategy from the 2016 election, suggesting the coalition would cut money from Medicare, something the coalition denies. Our reporter Isabel Rowe joins me now to look at the facts behind these campaigns. Isabel, good afternoon. What does the government say would cause power bills to rise under Labor? Well, the coalition is claiming that Labor's plan to spend $78 billion to do what they call poles and wires will drive up energy bills. Poles and wires is basically the work that needs to be done to transition to renewable energy, something that both parties are saying that they will do. The government has dropped a story to the big News Corp mastheads today. It's on most of the front pages saying that bills would go up $560 within a decade under Labor and that that figure is based on modelling. Now, the Energy Minister, Angus Taylor, was asked what this modelling is. He's campaigning in Tasmania today. He wouldn't be drawn on how he got to that figure, but this is his argument. Labor has said they're going to spend an extra $78 billion on transmission, um, and they've got to explain who's going to pay for that. We know who pays for it when there's overspending on poles and wires. We saw it when they were last in power. It's paid for by consumers. And it's as simple as that. So the $78 billion... They're their numbers, not ours. Uh, They've been very clear about that. Um, And that needs to be paid for by consumers. Labor says this is just a desperate attempt to discredit them and that both the government and the opposition use the same energy economics company to do their modelling. To provide a bit of clarification, the Grattan Institute's Energy Program Director Tony Wood was on News Breakfast this morning and he says whichever party wins, they're going to have to pay for poles and wires and the cost difference will be marginal. When you're, all you've got is the headline uh, statements and claims, it's very difficult to work out uh, who's more likely to be true than, than the other. The issue really is going to be, look, it doesn't matter who's in power. If we're going to build this transmission system to provide a low emissions future, it's going to have to be done. Doing it at lowest cost would be a really good idea, mm. um, but I don't see why either party's policies would make a huge difference to how much it's going to cost, to be honest. That's Tony Wood there. And Isabel, the coalition is also criticising Labor on border security. Yeah, they're picking up on something that Mr Albanese said during a press conference on Sunday. He was asked whether he supported temporary protection visas, which are given to asylum seekers who come to Australia without a visa. Uh, Anthony Albanese initially said he supported those visas and then corrected himself and said that he didn't uh, because they keep asylum seekers in a state of limbo. Minister Karen Andrews claims that these visas are crucial and they're a part of the border protection policy because they deter people smugglers. Here's some of her exchange on RN Breakfast. On the one hand, he has said that he supports Operation Sovereign Borders but he doesn't understand what the three pillars of Operation Sovereign Borders are. 
turn backs when it's safe to do so, regional processing and temporary protection visas. So you can't say that you support Operation Sovereign Borders if you don't support temporary protection visas. Temporary protection visas are a key part of Operation Sovereign Borders. And the but they points were, but that are it, being made... But since the, Operation the point, Borders, Minister, no one is going on temporary protection visas, are they? Temporary protection visas are a key part of the policy and they're there to be a very, very strong deterrent. Labor says there's no evidence that TPVs do anything to deter people smugglers and it supports the other parts of Operation Sovereign Borders that do do something. And Isabel, Shadow Home Affairs Minister Christina Keneally has also suggested that voters should be wary of the coalition's plans for Medicare. What's happened there? Yeah, so this is one from the archives. When the Abbott government proposed a $7 co-payment for a doctor's appointments in 2014, Labor took that to the 2016 election, saying that uh, Malcolm Turnbull would privatise Medicare. And around that time, Liberal Senator Anne Rustin told Parliament she didn't think Medicare was sustainable. Now, Anne Rustin may be the new Health Minister if coalition if the coalition wins government. And on RN Breakfast this morning, the Shadow Minister for Home Affairs, Christina Keneally, claimed that she can't be trusted with Medicare. Anne Rustin, Scott Morrison's handpicked choice is the person he wants in charge of Medicare. She is on the record saying Medicare is unsustainable in its current form. So what's she going to cut? She's on the record supporting co-payments and an end to bulk billing. This would be an end to universal health care as we know it. And when it comes to the cashless welfare card, Anne Rustin, again, on the record, wanting to make it the universal platform. She even told parliamentary inquiry this is what she was looking at doing. That's uh, Christine Keneally there. And the government says, uh, and it has said many times, it doesn't support that anymore. It's not its policy to make any cuts to Medicare. Isabel Rowe, thank you. Well, Labor has promised a sweeping review of the National Disability Insurance Scheme, declaring it will stop wastage and improve the quality of care. Disability advocates say moves to reduce red tape and support people to make their own choices are good, but firm dollar figures and clear timelines are also crucial. Stephanie Smale reports. Nearly half a million Australians use the National Disability Insurance Scheme, or NDIS, to help pay for the support they need, including therapy and accommodation. But Labor's NDIS spokesman Bill Shorten argues the $30-plus billion system needs an overhaul. You shouldn't in this country need a lawyer to access a wheelchair. You shouldn't in this country need a lawyer to access some hours of early intervention, speech pathology or psychology or occupational therapy or physiotherapy. The NDIS was never conceived to be a second full-time job for people trying to deal with the scheme. As part of the remodelling, Labor would employ more staff at the agency that runs the NDIS, with specific appointments to improve access in regional Australia and more people with a disability on the board. Labor has also vowed to increase funding for advocacy, promised to improve housing options and focus on getting more people with a disability into long-term jobs. Samantha Connor is the president of People with Disability Australia. She says too many people are locked in court battles to access funding under the existing system. So more money to pay for advocates to help them would be welcome. The advocacy sector is in crisis at the moment. There are long, long waiting lists or people have closed their wait list because there's just too many people. You know, it's ridiculous that people have, that they have to fight just to get the support that they need because an algorithm has made a decision or 
a person has made a decision which means that they literally can't get out of bed on the weekend or that they need a wheelchair. What is wrong with the system that people are having to go to court? So uh, sometime last year they introduced a range of different measures and it means that they make decisions based on the idea of having a primary disability. Most people with disability have more than one disability and they also have different life circumstances. So it's become a scheme which is very much based on your disability, you know, one disability and based upon the evidence that you have about your medical condition, which is absolutely against the intent of the scheme. The scheme was always intended to give people what they need to be who they are and bridge the gap between a disabled life and an ordinary life. Is that what Labor means by the NDIS being a second full-time job, that there is a lot of hoops to jump through to access the funding? Absolutely. You know, one of the biggest things that we have at the moment is self-management. Um, We have individualised funding, which is not block funding. It means it doesn't go to a disability service provider. It goes to a person with a disability. So they've got um, the choices about what kind of, um, you know, what kind of services and supports that they can purchase. So we need to make sure that people have got choice and control. But Samantha Connor says there's concern that plans to regulate providers in a bid to protect people from being ripped off could backfire by reducing choice. Making sure that people with disability are safe but not wrapped in cotton wool. There's always been a tendency to kind of lock us into places and there needs to be a balance between making sure that people can have choices and making sure that people can have safety. The Minister for the NDIS, Linda Reynolds, has been contacted for comment. The federal government boosted NDIS funding in the recent budget, pushing spending to $157.8 billion over four years with the Treasurer vowing that under the coalition, the NDIS will always be fully funded. It also abandoned a plan to use independent assessments of participants after a public and political backlash. That's Stephanie Smale reporting there. The major parties are under pressure from exporters to rebuild trade links with China. Two years after Beijing launched trade strikes on Australian exports, such as barley, wine and lobster, Australian trade officials still can't talk to their Chinese counterparts. The coalition has painted itself as the party that will stand up to Beijing and handle the trade portfolio, while Labor says any suggestions it would be soft on China are wrong and racist. John Daly reports. This is a product we've got for the US. Two years after Australian lobsters were turfed out of the Chinese market, South Australian exporter Andrew Ferguson is still feeling the pain. Look, initially I thought, well, this is a huge thing to lose this market weight. Wake up one morning and and uh, look at uh, look, it's all these lobsters in our tanks and there's no market, just gone straight away. And then we're left to pick up the pieces and try and work out what we're going to do. I guess I was a little bit angry to start off with. Then I looked a bit closer at um, starting to understand our sovereign rights and what we're you know where it was going and looking at a bit of the aggression from China. Yeah, but I'm. <laughs> I know we we are really severely affected from it, probably more than any other industries, really, because our own market was China alone. Australian lobsters, along with barley, wine and cotton, were targeted by Chinese trade sanctions, widely seen as a response to the Morrison government's position on a number of issues, including calls for an independent investigation into the origins of COVID-19 and excluding Chinese telco Huawei from the 5G network. The lobster industry has struggled to find alternative markets to China, while other commodities such as cotton and coal have been quite successful in finding other export destinations. 
The current Trade Minister, Dan Tian, says the coalition has supported diversifying exporters by inking free trade deals with the UK and India. Uh, when we came into office, 27% of our trade was covered by FTAs. That's now 70%. It will go to 75% once the UK FTA is ratified and will go to over 80% once the India FTA is ratified. So it has been an agenda which has seen us be able to deliver for Australian exporters. Dantian is taking credit there for trade deals struck as far back as the Abbott government, which signed a major free trade deal with China in 2015. In the last few years, the Australian Trade Minister hasn't even been able to get Chinese trade officials on the phone. So I wrote to my Chinese counterpart when I came into the portfolio. Uh, That's over a year ago now. Uh, Now, I haven't had a response to that letter. The Morrison government's, I guess, presided over one of the lowest ebbs in relations with China. Can your party be trusted with that relationship going forward? Absolutely, um, because we will stand up for Australia's national interests. In the lead-up to the election, Coalition MP and Defence Minister Peter Dutton made Labor out as China's favoured party, suggesting Albanese would be Beijing's preferred Prime Minister. Labor's campaign has also been stalked by trucks emblazoned with Chinese Communist Party says vote Labor. The advertisements are authorised by Conservative lobby group Advance Australia, Shadow Trade Minister Madeline King says such comments are wrong. It's, it's clearly not true. And, you know, I'd point to policies Labor governments have made before. It was uh, Julia Gillard, a Labor government, leading a Labor government that, that first moved to ensure Huawei wasn't part of the NBN rollout. The trailers that are that are going around the countryside, I saw one in Perth the other day, and I know they're certainly in New South Wales as well. I think it's frankly wrong. Uh, it's a lie. And it's 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 also racist. Export Council of Australia Chief Executive Diane Tipping says the two major parties' policies seem to be in lockstep on China. Currently, both the Coalition and Labor Party share very similar policies on China, and we do not see any any real difference in, in those policies. Um, that is appropriate, but going forward, it must be a priority of any new Australian government to look at that and to try and improve the relationship. There is one key difference in trade policies when it comes to overseas workers. The coalition agreed to waive labour market testing in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which means workers from Canada, Peru, Brunei, Mexico, Malaysia and Vietnam are able to come and fill jobs in Australia without these jobs being offered or advertised to Australians first. Madeline King says Labor would be taking a close look at those agreements. We just have to be mindful that whatever the portion of the Labor movement we're talking about is, is that it doesn't derogate from that need to have Labor market testing and make sure local people can fill these jobs if they're indeed able to. Dantian says any renegotiation of foreign Labor agreements would be catastrophic for trade. That's John Daly reporting. On ABC Radio, right across the country, you're listening to us on The World Today. New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet has launched a new government body to help flood-affected regions in the north of the state get back on their feet. The Northern Rivers Reconstruction Corporation will organise the rebuilding of homes and services. It also has the powers to compulsorily buy land. But as Carly Williams reports, for some residents, the move hasn't come quick enough. Wiradjuri woman Auntie Wendy King lost her home of 20 years when floods hit Lismore nearly two months ago. 
She's only just felt strong enough to inspect the remains of the house, visiting for the first time yesterday. My husband and I, we, we, we got the courage up to go down to, to have a look at the old house and it was part of the healing for us, but we just broke down and cried. I didn't go inside. I couldn't actually bring myself to go inside. The hubby went in and uh, came out and just broke it, broke him into again. And I just sat there in awe and just just bawled my eyes out and thinking, why has it happened? What went wrong? Auntie Wendy King had been staying with family members until recently when a short-term home was found for her. A shortage in hotel rooms, caravans and rentals means the closest temporary accommodation for Auntie Wendy is a two-and-a-half-hour drive away in Coffs Harbour. But it's not country. It's, it's just not country. It's too lonely, um, away from everybody. We don't know anybody there. So we came home on Thursday just to... Just to break that ice a bit, we just don't want to move. Like I said, I'm very appreciative. It seems like everything's stood still at the moment. I just wish there was some movement, quick movement, to help us, you know, we need to resettle ASAP. Today, the New South Wales government has announced a new organisation that will lead the flood recovery in the state's north. It'll direct government agencies to rebuild houses and social services in the region. Premier Dominic Perrottet knows it's been a challenging time. There has been a lot of pain and suffering for many people. We've had people lose their lives. Uh, Many people have had their homes destroyed, businesses lost. We have thousands of people who are still not in homes Um, And we need to make sure we get everybody back on their feet as quickly as possible, but not just being focused on the short term. We need to have a long term horizon as well. The Premier acknowledges the new Northern Rivers Reconstruction Corporation is not just about trying to get support and money out the door faster, but also about shaking up flood management strategies. We can't go through such a substantive event and do things the way we've done things um, in the past. We need to build back better, uh, we need to build back stronger and importantly we need, we need to do so uh, in a way that uh, protects people into the future. Ian Didham is the President of Flood Management Australia. It's his view that government needs to spend more on flood planning rather than fixing things after the water recedes. Australia spends 97% of its flood related expenditure on cleaning up and fixing up and rebuilding after floods and only 3% of flood-related expenditure on prevention or forward planning. We need to switch that around so that this corporation might start that process. The new government body will also have sweeping powers to compulsorily acquire land, something Ian Dinham agrees is an important part of the solution. Compulsory acquisition I guess has always been available to local councils in exercising their statutory authority but uh, then the compensation payable is subject to just terms compensation requirements. So now where we're trying to solve this major problem and risk to life, uh, it's, it's a tool, one of many, which hopefully will be used by this corporation to solve the problem. Okay, so if somebody's house is deemed unlivable and unsafe to live in and they own that home and they own the land that it's on, the government can say you can't move back into this house we must pay you to move. Is that correct? Uh, Not quite as simple as that. But uh, if you've seen the movie The Castle, you've seen that it uh, can go to court and a court will make the decision if um, 
if the property owner wishes to take legal action. So obviously nobody's going to be thrown out without some form of compensation and, and consultation beforehand. For Auntie Wendy King, the news of the Northern Rivers Reconstruction Corporation could not have come sooner. There are so many tears that's still being shed every day, every minute of the day. Sorry business, and it's going to be our sorry business is going to continue until we're resettled. That's Wiradjuri woman and flood victim Wendy King ending that report from Carly Williams. Finally today, there are renewed calls from the business sector to ease COVID isolation rules. They say staff shortages are creating serious headaches for industry. But with COVID-related deaths on track to reach 10,000 this year, the suggestion has been met with concern from one epidemiologist. Matt Bamford has this report. It's the middle of another busy shift for Sulav Kaki. The cafe manager from Peakhurst in Sydney South has been battling staff shortages for more than two years. We have like a small cafe in one of the suburbs and we only have like only limited staff. But when someone calls in, you know, sick or COVID positive, it's a really struggle because we, so we just have to work the day with like limited staff, less staff, which is a struggle. It's a widespread problem, according to the New South Wales Business Council's Daniel Hunter. Food manufacturing and the manufacturing sector is, is, has been really hard hit as well, um, right, right through to, to office based workers, uh, people uh, that, that really need to be. I guess delivering frontline services are unable to get to work. The council's the latest business group, along with the Victorian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, to call for the easing of isolation rules. Currently, close contacts have to isolate for seven days. Daniel Hunter says that's too much to ask. There's critical staff shortages around all industries and uh, it's causing chaos and um, people can't operate at the moment properly. It's not just big businesses is what I want to emphasise the point. A lot of small businesses are really hamstrung by staff shortages and they've had a crippling 12 months. Sulav Kaki would also like to see the rules change. I think from my side it would be good for like a lot of uh, like small business owners, especially like small business owners uh, where they have like limited number of staff they can play with. If someone has some symptoms but is not co- like positive, they should be able to still come to work instead of like isolating for seven days. I think it would be a great idea for small businesses to have their restrictions lifted. Australians have lived under some kind of health restrictions for more than two years. Sulav Kaki believes the health guidelines should be protection enough for workers to return from isolation early. So the government has like given us like a set rules and regulations which we need to follow to operate in these times. So I think if every other business like follow the, the rules, then we should be able to get out of this. And Daniel Hunter says businesses have already paid a high price. We believe that it's time you know, to let business optimise. Don't forget, businesses have gone to the wall during this pandemic. People have gone bankrupt. People are struggling and struggling to make money because they can't get staff. And I think that just needs to be balanced sometimes. You know, COVID is, is very widespread at the moment. Um, you know, a lot of people have had it. It's, it's everywhere in our community. Uh, and, and we think that it's time that we, that we have some flexibility on this. But Professor Nancy Baxter from Melbourne University's School of Population and Global Health says easing rules now would be a mistake. I know everyone's very tired of COVID and listen, I'm tired of COVID too. You know, COVID's not tired of us. Right now we have an outbreak of BA2 that's only just starting to decrease. So now is not the time to really start to relax things. 
if you wanted to relax things, then it would be when transmission is low, and then you could you could reimpose certain protections if transmission starts to go up again. She says it's still important to keep community transmission down as much as possible. The reason that there are so many people having to isolate is because there's so much transmission of COVID. With allowing people um, to leave the house if they're close contacts, and remember close contacts is a household contact, so you have a relatively high chance of actually developing COVID. So allowing those folks out is for sure going to help drive transmission more. And Nancy Baxter says the human cost of rising infections cannot be downplayed. You know, you hear this continual refrain like it's just like the flu, but, you know, we're on track to have 10,000 people die of COVID in Australia this year. Uh, And in the worst flu year, we only have 1,000 people die. And that's not good, but, you know, that's one-tenth of what we're on track to see with COVID. The Department of Health has been contacted for comment. That's our reporter, Matt Bamford, there. That's all from the World Today team for this Tuesday. I'm Sally Sarah. Stay safe and enjoy your afternoon. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. The biggest spender this election will be Clive Palmer, the billionaire head of the United Australia Party. Today, ABC 7.30's Peter McCutcheon on how Clive Palmer became a big political name and why the major parties will be worried about his unpredictable nature in the weeks ahead. Look for ABC News Daily on the ABC Listener. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.